Welcome to the Felt Recoil Podcast. It's episode number 113. It's fantastic to be here. Appreciate you stopping by, downloading, telling a friend. Wherever you get your podcasts, you'll find new episodes of the Felt Recoil Podcast every Tuesday morning. We would love for you to leave us a rating, write a review. It helps other people find the show, helps us grow. And we certainly appreciate that. This week's charity of choice is the War Fund. You can learn more about the War Fund at GreenvilleWarFund.com. This is the Wounded and Recovering Fund that's designed to help heroes heal. If you don't know, you could be a police officer and get shot or stabbed or whatever else bricked in the line of duty these days. And it's not unheard of that financial support would run out, both from your insurance company and from the department itself, and you can't return to the line of duty, a.k.a. work, in time, and people stop paying. And then suddenly, you'd be on your own, if not for the war fund. So uh, GreenvilleWarFund.com will give you more details about ways they help heroes heal and what they're doing to make sure that injured and recovering officers get the financial assistance they may need learn more at greenvillewarfund.com and then come join us this week for their charity falling steel match happening at belton gun club with the war fund greenvillewarfund.com greenvillewarfund.com we had some scheduling conflicts come up this week and so it's just me here with you Uh, and while i'm fantastically glad to have you here i thought it'd be a nice time instead of listening to me drivel on and on because it is a mad world it's the same madness it was last week i thought let's focus on some good and we haven't revisited the topic uh since this happened there's there's new stuff around a series of episodes we did and i wanted to step back and uh, go over those again the first medal of honor action ever recorded on a drone was Operation Anaconda. And Felt Recall episodes uh, episodes 77 and 78, we did a two-part series kind of narrating exactly what happened. And so I'm going to share both of those with you here now so they'll be together in one place. The heroic final actions of Air Force Technical Sergeant John Chapman were recorded on drone video and released in June of last year, June 2019. That marks the first time a Medal of Honor recipient's actions have been caught on camera. A CIA Predator drone uh, hovered above 10,000 feet and captured the entire footage of Chapman's battle. That happened on March 4th of 2002. He sustained at least 16 wounds from gunfire and shrapnel, and he's credited with saving the lives of 23 troops before he died from his wounds. It earned him a posthumous Medal of Honor. You can learn more. At our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Felt Recall Show, we have an entire article about what happened, plus the footage itself is there, feltrecoilshow.com. Uh, learn more. Click over to the blog, and we'll have it there as well. Okay, here is Operation Anaconda from the Felt Recall Podcast. An editor's note before we begin. According to Newsweek.com, hours after Newsweek published the story I'm about to read to you, the White House announced that President Donald Trump would award the Medal of Honor to Britt Slabinski. 
As the pre-dawn twilight crept over an Afghan mountainside, an Air Force commando named Jay huddled in the snow, listening to a distressed voice crackle over his radio, then fade away. Moments later, he says, the voice came again, breaking through the static in little more than an anguished whisper, This is Mako 30 Charlie. This is Mako 30 Charlie. The same six words, over and over each time dissipating before Jay could hear anything else. Jay was part of an elite reconnaissance team operating behind enemy lines, and he immediately recognized the call sign and voice. They belonged to his counterpart on another team, Air Force Technical Sergeant John Chapman. From his hidden perch, Jay responded again and again on his powerful satellite-capable radio, but he received... No reply. The voice continued for about 40 minutes, he says, like a plaintive mantra. This is Mako 30 Charlie. This is Mako 30 Charlie. Then it fell silent. It wasn't until the next evening that Jay learned Chapman had died, that he was the last American to hear him alive. Today, some 16 years after Chapman's tragic death, fierce disagreement over what happened on that snowy peak threatens to overshadow two Medal of Honor recommendations that, as of publication, await White House approval. The bitter dispute pits members of the Navy SEALs against Air Force Special Operators and Army Rangers. It has entangled numerous senior military leaders, several of whom had personal links to the desperate fight on Takargar Mountain. The controversy revolves around Operation Anaconda, a March 2002 attempt to surround and destroy a large al-Qaeda force. It took place in eastern Afghanistan and cost the lives of eight Americans, seven of them on Takar Gar. Chapman was among the dead. Using Predator drone footage and other evidence, the Air Force has argued that a SEAL Team 6 unit mistakenly left him for dead while retreating under heavy fire. Afterward, the Air Force claims, Chapman fought on for an hour badly wounded and alone, before al-Qaeda militants killed him as he provided cover for an approaching helicopter. The SEALs, however, reject the claim that Chapman was alive when they fled. The SEALs did not want to be told, officially, that they left a comrade on that mountain alive, says a former defense official who, like most sources mentioned in this story, requested anonymity for security reasons or to describe sensitive high-level discussions about members of classified units. Never released witness statements and video footage seen by a Newsweek reporter appear to support the Air Force's version of events. Defense Secretary James Mattis eventually agreed, sending the recommendation to award Chapman a Medal of Honor to the White House in the fall of 2017. Should President Donald Trump sign off on it, Chapman's Medal of Honor would be the first based primarily on technical intelligence rather than eyewitness accounts. The Air Force and the Navy both declined to make any official comment for this story. What has shocked and angered some sources familiar with the battle is that Mattis has also recommended the same award for then-Senior Chief Petty Officer Britt Slabinski, the SEAL team leader who allegedly left Chapman behind. Some special operators blame Slabinski for not only Chapman's death, but also the lost lives of six other special ops on the mountain. Others say it's absurd to recommend someone for the Medal of Honor for his bravery in a fight in which he left a teammate behind albeit by mistake. 
informed by a Newsweek reporter that Slabinski was in line for a Medal of Honor, an Army special operator who took part in the operation was aghast. Quote, you kicked me in the nuts when he told me that, he says. Mike, a former Air Force targeting analyst who monitored the Predator feed of the Tucker Gar fight in real time and rewatched it twice last year, the Air Force's request was similarly taken aback. Quote, I'm completely shocked that the Navy is putting a package up, end quote. Some observers are angry at the Navy for even recommending Slabinski for the award, which they claim was part of a campaign to sabotage the Air Force's effort on behalf of Chapman. Such a campaign would be unprecedented, according to military awards expert Doug Sterner, saying, I cannot think of a single instance in which one branch of service opposed a Medal of Honor for another one. Chapman supporters say the entire episode shows the extraordinary length that the SEALs will go to to protect their reputation. A SEAL who took part in the Tucker Gar fight strongly disputed that assessment, saying, that's a bunch of BS. The blame, he says, lies with the Air Force for allowing the controversy to become public without doing due diligence, which would have included interviewing him and his fellow SEALs. The Air Force caused all the problem, he says, by just trying to jam something down everybody's throat without even talking to us. Others, familiar with the battle, sprang to Slabinski's defense even as they acknowledged the unusual optics of awarding him a Medal of Honor. He's an introvert, but he's very bold in his actions, says a former senior SEAL Team 6 officer who served frequently with Slabinski. Quote, I thought he was a great leader. A former defense official familiar with the discussions over the Medal of Honor recommendations is adamant that Slabinski, a second-generation SEAL who retired from the Navy as a Master Chief Petty Officer in 2014, deserves his award just as Chapman does. But he bemoans how, as the two award packages wended their way through the approvals process, the heroism of two brave men has at times taken second place to what he termed the tribal aspects of the special ops community. He says it is a bureaucratic story that is not covered in glory. The story begins less than six months after the September 11th attacks when the United States launched Operation Anaconda, a high-profile battle against Al-Qaeda. From the beginning, it went awry. The Americans had expected the jihadi fighters to be massed in the villages on the floor of the Shai Akat Valley, but they weren't. Instead, when the U.S. infantry landed in the valley by helicopter on March 2nd, they realized the enemy had dug in on the high ground overlooking it. For two days, the militants used automatic weapons and mortar fire to pin down the Americans and forced their Afghan allies to retreat before they even reached the valley. There was, however, one successful part of the operation. In the days before the battle, two reconnaissance teams from the Army's Delta Force and one from SEAL Team 6 sneaked behind enemy lines from their base in Gardez, eight miles north of the Shah Aikot. From their vantage point, High above the valley, they called in devastating airstrikes and provided critical intelligence on the Al-Qaeda forces. Their success caught the attention of SEAL Team 6's forward headquarters at Bagram Air Base, about 90 miles north of Gardez. 
the reconnaissance effort, and Team 6 were each part of a task force composed of units from Joint Special Operations Command, or JSOC, the secretive organization that runs many of the military's most sensitive missions. Team 6 had seen very little action in Afghanistan and was eager to get into the fight. Early on March 3rd, a day after the main assault, the task force commander gave the order to send more SEALs into the valley. One of those teams, led by Slabinski, was called Mako 30. Slabinski's mission was to establish an observation post on top of Takargar, a 10,469-foot mountain in the southeast corner of the Shah Aikot. The plan was to insert Mako 30's eight operators by helicopter near the mountain and have them patrol up to the peak under the cover of darkness. This would allow the SEALs, wearing night vision goggles, to spot any enemy fighters, shoot them, call in airstrikes, or get away. But a series of unforeseeable delays meant the team ran out of time to land at the starting location and maneuver up the mountain before dawn. Meanwhile, the chain of command began to fray. Rather than communicating through the Reconnaissance Operations Center, where they were at Gardez, the SEALs began talking on the radio straight back to their headquarters in Bagram. Slabinski told Bagram he wanted to postpone the mission 24 hours. But, for reasons that have never been made clear, his bosses pressured him to get to the top of the mountain that night. Feeling he had little choice, Slabinski asked the Army Special Operations helicopter crew to fly his team straight to the peak. This would break a cardinal rule of reconnaissance. Never infiltrate by helicopter directly to your observation post, as it gives away your position to the enemy. But an Air Force gunship had flown over the frozen peak earlier that night and said it was clear of any enemy fighters. Look. The helicopter crew agreed to do what Slabinski had asked. When Mako 30's Chinook helicopter, known as Razor 3, arrived at the mountaintop, however, militants encamped there fired on the aircraft, badly damaging it. As the pilot struggled to abort the landing and wrestle his helicopter away from danger, Petty Officer First Class Neil Roberts from Mako 30 fell out the back and into the deep snow. With the aircraft too badly damaged to return to the peak, the pilot crash-landed at the north end of the valley. Another helicopter picked up the crew and the seven other operators and whisked them off to Gardez. Aware that the militants were unlikely to spare Roberts if they captured him, six members of Mako 30 quickly boarded another special ops aircraft that flew them back to the mountain. They didn't know it at the time, but they were already too late. Analysis of Predator footage later revealed that the Al-Qaeda fighters killed Roberts just before 4.30 a.m. on March 4th. All they knew was that their mission was incredibly dangerous. Slabinski would tell an audience in New York on March 2, 2017, When I made the decision to rescue Neil, I just knew at the time that that was going to be the last thing that I did on this earth. I was convinced of it. The helicopter touched down on the peak shortly before 5 a.m. Slobinski jumped off first, but stumbled. Next was Chapman, the team's only non-SEAL. He belonged to the Air Force's 24th Special Tactics Squadron, STS. Known by its members as the 2-4, the unit is the Air Force equivalent of Delta Force or SEAL Team 6, and it works exclusively for JSOC. 
Chapman's primary role as Mako 30's combat controller was to call in airstrikes. The Mako 30 operators again faced withering fire when they alighted from the helicopter. As the aircraft departed, the men split into three pairs. Chapman and Slavinsky headed uphill, slogging through the knee-deep snow to reach a bunker from which they were taking fire. They killed the two men in the bunker, but then machine gun fire erupted from a second bunker nearby. Suddenly, Chapman went down. Slabinski glanced over at him. The airman's rifle was laying across his chest, the aiming laser rising and falling in time with his breathing, so the SEAL knew he was alive. Moments later, a second member of the team was wounded as enemy fire poured from seemingly every direction. The SEALs were overmatched, and they didn't see Roberts anyway. Slabinski had just seconds to get his men out of the crossfire. He looked back toward Chapman. The laser no longer moving. The airman, he concluded, was dead. Slabinski ordered his men to retreat, so the SEALs ran and slid down the side of the mountain, pursued by machine gun fire. The SEALs found temporary shelter under a rocky overhang. From there, they called in their location to an Air Force gunship. Then, the five survivors, two seriously wounded, moved about 5,000 feet in six hours to a position where a helicopter eventually rescued them. But as the SEALs made their escape, satellite radio failures and confusion between various headquarters meant that a JSOC quick reaction force, an Army Ranger platoon, launched from Bagram in two Chinooks and headed for Takargar. While one aircraft awaited further instruction, the other flew straight to the peak. Unaware that two helicopters had already been shot up while trying to land there. This time, the militants downed the Chinook, known as Razor One, with a rocket-propelled grenade as it landed. In the ensuing day-long battle, three Rangers, a special ops aviator, and an Air Force pararescuemen were killed before the Rangers finally gained control of the mountaintop. Part Two something was wrong. After the fight on Takargar, Army and Air Force Special Operators blamed their losses on poor decision-making by the SEALs. Some members of Chapman's unit, the 24th STS, were so upset that they tried to avoid assignments with SEAL Team 6, according to a former Delta Force operator. And it didn't take long for word to leak that perhaps Chapman hadn't died when the SEALs said he did. Says a former combat controller familiar with the fight and its aftermath, quote, Guys knew something was wrong the next day because of the way Navy guys were talking about it. Within weeks, Chapman's colleagues in the 24th STS concluded that he had still been alive when the SEALs retreated and fought on alone against impossible odds. That possibility was first officially raised by Army Lieutenant Colonel Andy Milani, a Special Operations Aviation Officer whom JSOC appointed to investigate the battle. Milani's probe remains classified but he repeated his findings in an unclassified paper he wrote while attending the Army War College in 2003. In that paper, he noted that Predator footage had captured a fight on Takargar's peak during the period between the SEALs' retreat and the downing of Razor One. 
Milani's investigation showed that Roberts was dead by the time Mako 30 returned to the mountain, but someone was still fighting on the top of Takagar at a time when no Americans were supposedly alive there. According to Milani, the footage showed a man in a bunker engaging at least two other fighters in close combat. The lieutenant colonel laid out two possible explanations. Either Al-Qaeda fighters mistook one another for Americans, or the mysterious figure was Chapman, fighting for his life after the SEALs left him behind. Milani did not reach a conclusion, but in January 2003, the Air Force awarded Chapman a posthumous Air Force Cross for his actions up to the point when Slavinsky had said he was killed. Like the Navy Cross and the Army's Distinguished Service Cross, the Air Force Cross is a valor award second only to the Medal of Honor. In making the case for this award, the Air Force relied heavily on witness statements from three of the surviving members of MAKO 30, who all described him in heroic terms. Slabinski, in particular, credited Chapman with saving their lives, saying in his statement, quote, I know if John hadn't engaged the first enemy position, it would have surely killed us all before we reached cover. John died, saving us from the enemy fire, which was effective from three sides when he was killed. John deserves the highest medal we can get for him. The Navy likewise awarded Slabinski a Navy Cross for his actions from the moment Razor 3 crash-landed to his team's eventual rescue after the loss of Roberts and Chapman. His citation reads, During this entire sustained engagement, Senior Chief Petty Officer Slabinski exhibited classic grace under fire, instead fastly leading the intrepid rescue operation, saving the lives of his wounded men, and setting the conditions for the ultimate vanquishing of the enemy and the seizing of Tacker Gar. With the casualties buried and the service crosses awarded, Tacker Gar faded from the headlines for more than a decade. But within the tight-knit world of Air Force Special Operators, a desire still burned for the White House to recognize what they viewed as the full extent of Chapman's heroism. Thirteen years after his death, they would get their chance. Part 3. A Hell of a Battle Since the Vietnam War, no Air Force personnel have received the Medal of Honor. And in May 2015, Air Force Secretary Deborah Lee James read an article that wondered what it would take for an airman to be awarded the medal in the post-9-11 era. The topic intrigued James, who was in charge of recommending medals of honor to the Secretary of Defense, who in turn had to decide whether to endorse the recommendations and submit them to the White House for approval. Because almost all of the seven Air Force crosses and about half of the Silver Stars awarded to airmen since September 11th had gone to special operators, James ordered Air Force Special Operations Command to investigate whether any awards deserved to be upgraded. Complicating James's directive, Pentagon regulations stipulated that for a lesser award to become a Medal of Honor, new information had to be presented. After at least six months, according to James, her team reported back that it had identified a possible upgrade for Chapman's Air Force Cross. The new information consisted largely of a careful analysis of the video shot by the predator of the action 
on Talker Gar. Individuals appeared as little more than black blobs on the infrared footage the drone was transmitting as it circled more than a mile above the mountain. By comparing and combining the Predator footage with video shot by a circling Air Force gunship, analysts were able to isolate the blob that was Chapman and track his movements. The Air Force then created a picture-within-a-picture video presentation in which an animated recreation of the fight fills most of the screen, synced to the drone footage playing in a box. The video has never been made public and Air Force Special Operations Command declined to comment for this story. But a Newsweek reporter was able to view the video and take notes. As an Air Force officer narrates, the video shows Slabinski jumping from the back ramp of the Chinook, losing his balance and falling into the snow. Next off the helicopter is Chapman, who fires as he charges towards the first bunker, which is about 100 feet away. Slabinski follows, at one point almost catching up with him. Then Chapman surges ahead and arrives at the bunker, shooting into it for several seconds before Slabinski reaches him, about 90 seconds after getting off the helicopter. The narrator says, When Sergeant Chapman reached the bunker complex, he killed two fighters and took control of the terrain. By destroying the enemy's frontline position, Sergeant Chapman eliminated the closest threat to the Mako 30 team. The video thus validates Slabinski's statement, in which he credits Chapman with killing two enemy fighters, then occupying the bunker. The only difference? Chapman probably fired the shots that killed the two Al-Qaeda fighters in the bunker from almost point-blank range, rather than the 25 yards Slabinski estimated in his statement. Chapman then opens fire on the second Al-Qaeda bunker, about 30 feet away. The narrator continues, Without hesitation or regard for his own safety, Sergeant Chapman moved from a position of cover to engage the nearby machine gun. While Sergeant Chapman was firing at Bunker 2, an enemy fighter flanked him, which resulted in very close combat. Sergeant Chapman killed the enemy fighter, but during this engagement, Sergeant Chapman was shot and went down. Although it's not possible to identify the exact moment he was shot on the video, it must have been within two minutes of getting off the helicopter. Slabinski has said that at this point he glanced at Chapman and assessed he was still alive. Of the other four SEALs on the mission, two followed Slabinski and Chapman. The other two headed in the opposite direction. The footage shows one of the SEALs who had joined Slabinski on top of a boulder shooting an M60 machine gun before getting shot and falling down and the three SEALs huddling at the base of the boulder for a few seconds. Less than three minutes after arriving, the SEALs begin their retreat. Slabinski has said that it was then that he concluded that Chapman was dead. Slabinski declined to be interviewed for this article, directing a reporter to the Naval Special Warfare Command Public Affairs Office, which did not respond to requests for comment. But in 2016, he told the New York Times that after giving the order to withdraw, 
he actually crawled over Chapman's body in the rush to get off the mountain and saw no sign of life, saying, I'm already 95% in my mind that he's been killed. That's why I was like, okay, we've got to move. However, the Predator video, which offers an uninterrupted view of Slabinski during this period, does not appear to show him crawling anywhere near Chapman. But it does show him and two other SEALs moving past the body of Neil Roberts as they begin their retreat. They go right over him, says the former combat controller who was familiar with the footage. Because the SEALs never mentioned finding Roberts, some have speculated that Slabinski became disoriented and confused Roberts' body with Chapman's, which was only a few yards away. Says the former combat controller, it's actually a common theory that the body that Slab believes he checked was Roberts. That happens to be my theory. The SEALs are on the peak of the mountain for less than four minutes. As they make their escape, Chapman's body lies motionless in the first bunker for about 12 minutes. But then, the footage captures movement there, even though no one has approached it since the SEALs had fled. The man in the bunker proceeds to move around and fire his weapon for about an hour. I'm 110% certain that's Chapman says Mike, the Air Force targeting analyst for the original mission. In a 2017 analysis of the video conducted for the Air Force and obtained by Newsweek, Mike counted 39 distinct muzzle flashes emanating from the first bunker between approximately 5.40 a.m. and 6.08 a.m. He says, It's evident. You can see Chapman is definitely pulling the trigger on that M4, and rounds are coming. I don't know how many militants he took out, but it was a hell of a battle. Mike's analysis notes the man in the bunker is firing in almost every direction. Chapman, he says, was desperately defending himself from enemies that had him surrounded. Twice, Al-Qaeda fighters managed to creep up on the bunker, and Chapman is seen killing them in close quarters combat. The nature of the fight and the daylight that was spreading over the mountain make it highly unlikely, the former combat controller says, that this was a case of two enemy fighters attacking each other by mistake. He says, they're on top of each other. There's no confusion here. The Air Force claims that shortly after Chapman kills the second Al-Qaeda fighter, and moments before the helicopter carrying the Rangers arrives over the peak, he emerges from his covered position and shoots at the militants in the second bunker. This action led to his death and is central to the Air Force's case that he deserves the Medal of Honor. Chapman took this enormous risk to provide covering fire for the helicopter that was headed for the peak, the Air Force contends. Sergeant Chapman understood the ramifications of his actions, says the Air Force narrator. He selflessly moved in front of the enemy machine gun in Bunker 2 in order to engage the threat to the inbound helicopter. That decision is worthy of a Medal of Honor on its own, according to the former combat controller, who says, quote, He climbs out of the bunker, having been shot a half dozen times. He's attacked in hand-to-hand -hand combat, and then the final two rounds that took his life are the only thing that stopped him. Shot in the foot, the leg, the torso. I mean, this guy, we don't know what he thought, but he made the decision in as much pain and fear as he must have had to climb out of the bunker when the helicopter was coming. It's an amazing, 
courageous thing to do. The Rangers eventually found his body in the first bunker. An autopsy later revealed that Chapman was killed by two bullets that hit him in the upper body. The former combat controller, who's familiar with the autopsy, says, One, exploded his aorta. And then your blood pressure drops to zero. And you expire. And that takes 30 seconds. Maybe. Mako 3-0 Charlie. The video presentation wasn't the only evidence the Air Force used to buttress its case for Chapman. It also obtained a sworn statement from someone never previously interviewed in connection with Tucker Gar. Jay, Chapman's counterpart on one of the Delta Force teams which occupied an observation post roughly three miles north of Tucker Gar. Jay was from Chapman's unit and knew his radio style. In September 2016, in an affidavit obtained by Newsweek, he told an Air Force lawyer that he repeatedly heard Chapman's voice and call sign, Mako 30 Charlie, on the radio during the period when the video shows him fighting for his life. Mako 30 Charlie. Mako 30 Charlie. Jay says, in comments never previously made public, quote, the voice on the radio was John Chapman. A Mako 30 SEAL claims the Navy investigated Jay's assertions and concluded they were inaccurate, saying, quote, that was all disproved by comms logs and who was there. When it was dug into, it was not factual. And he adds, quote, we were on all the same freaks, meaning radio frequencies, and we never heard that, end quote. The former combat controller disputes this assertion, saying, quote, they weren't on the same freaks. That's a smokescreen. He's towing the party line. The SEALs would have been on an inter-team frequency on their handheld radios, whereas Jay would have been on battlefield common frequency. The former combat controller adds that there were no logs in which Chapman's calls would have been recorded because the frequency he was calling on would not have reached any of the command posts where those logs were kept. In addition to the video and Jay's witness statement, Chapman's autopsy, which the Air Force reanalyzed as part of its investigation, also supported the case that he had fought for a sustained period on the peak. Says the former combat controller, quote, The man was shot and fragged 16 times to include contusions on his face, nose, neck, and hands. That didn't happen in the first two minutes, end quote. Chapman's autopsy states that all the airman's wounds occurred before his death. The bruises to Chapman's hands, neck, and face were likely the result, according to the combat controller, of hand-to-hand combat with the two militants who made it as far as the bunker before Chapman killed them. A final piece of evidence supporting the Air Force's case? According to two sources familiar with the details of Chapman's award package, when he and his gear were recovered, he was found to have fired all his usable ammunition before succumbing to his wounds. Chapman had emptied six 30-round magazines, far more than he would have during the two minutes or less that elapsed before Slabinski saw him fall. The Blame Game In January 2016, 
Defense Secretary Ash Carter directed the military to conduct a review of service crosses and silver stars from the post-9-11 conflicts to see if any warranted an upgrade. The Air Force's attempt to boost Chapman's award became part of the review. Army Major Dave Eastburn, a Pentagon spokesman, says that in his directive, Carter waived the requirement that new, substantive, and relevant material information be provided to justify an upgrade. However, Air Force officials and others close to the Chapman upgrade effort were seemingly unaware that he did so. The Air Force divided its conclusions about Chapman's exploits into his actions from the moment Mako 30 landed back on Takar Gar to when the SEALs retreated, and then the events on the peak after the SEALs had withdrawn. For Air Force Secretary James, it was the latter, and particularly the video evidence, that convinced her that Chapman deserved the Medal of Honor. She told Newsweek, That was all I needed. That was like forensic proof in a crime scene almost. She forwarded her recommendation to Carter's office, confident that the Air Force's case was ironclad, saying, quote, I thought it was going to be a slam dunk, easy to get through package. On August 27, 2016, the New York Times published a story co-authored by the author of this story about the Air Force's effort to get Chapman a Medal of Honor. The article said that the Air Force's findings could rekindle old tensions in the special operations community over the mission. And to James's surprise and alarm, it did. She says, quote, People were afraid of getting blamed for the fact that the mission didn't go well. And then on top of that, it's a god-awful thing to believe now that you left someone behind for dead who, in fact, was alive. There's a lot of guilt going on here. And there's also the reputation of the SEALs at stake, end quote. Within a few days of the story's publication, a gathering of senior military leaders gave James the chance to speak with Army General Tony Thomas, the head of U.S. Special Operations Command. He had been the first Ranger Battalion commander in Afghanistan at the time of the battle. The three Rangers who died were his men, something no one had told her. James says she asked Thomas if she could count on his support regarding her recommendation to upgrade Chapman's award. He assured her his headquarters was, quote, absolutely behind the recommendation, she says. A military official who has discussed this issue with Thomas says that according to the general, no such conversation took place. James says she walked away from the conversation with renewed confidence that the upgrade would proceed smoothly. Events soon changed her mind. It was very hurtful. From the beginning of its effort to get Chapman's award upgraded, the Air Force appears to have taken extraordinary care not to impugn Slabinski or the SEALs. Air Force officials knew they had much to lose from picking a fight with such a politically influential group, so they tiptoed around the notion that members of the SEALs' most elite outfit had inadvertently abandoned a teammate in the middle of a firefight. James says, quote, Nobody was accusing Slablinski or any of the other members of the team of having done anything other than their very best under these terrible circumstances. In his voiceover for the Air Force's video presentation, the narrator describes Slabinski's decision to retreat from the mountaintop in positive terms, saying, quote, 
This bold action likely averted a catastrophic loss of the entire team. The team leader's intent was to suppress the enemy with air power. The team hoped to eliminate the threat, locate Petty Officer Roberts, recover Sergeant Chapman's body, and fulfill their commitment to leave no man behind. Once again, the enemy and the environment thwarted the team's plan. Nonetheless, by late 2016, it was becoming clear that the SEALs were going to resist the Air Force's attempt to upgrade Chapman's award based on his actions after the SEALs retreated from the mountaintop. Says a former Air Force official, they didn't want to be seen as having left Tech Sergeant Chapman behind. It was very hurtful and very problematic for them on many levels. Former Air Force official says the SEALs began throwing up bureaucratic roadblocks in an attempt to delay or defeat the effort to upgrade Chapman's Air Force Cross. Gabe Camarillo, the Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Manpower and Reserve Affairs from January 2016 to 2017, says, quote, There was a tremendous push by the Air Force to get this done by the end of the Obama administration. If President Obama left office without awarding Chapman the medal, Camarillo says there wasn't any confidence that this wouldn't die on the vine. Air Force officials held meeting after meeting with each other and with their counterparts in the office of the Secretary of Defense throughout 2016, breaking through one logjam after another. But just as it seemed Chapman's package had a chance of getting to the White House in time, Pentagon bureaucrats intervened. Staff in the Office of Acting Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness, Peter Levine, noticed that the SEALs had never signed their original witness statements for Chapman's Air Force Cross. Those statements were part of the upgrade package. Levine and his staff were keen to get them signed, particularly because the Chapman case was otherwise unprecedented in its reliance on technical intelligence rather than eyewitnesses. James says... The appropriate people contacted these individuals and asked them to sign their words 15 years ago. But after a couple of months of waiting for the SEALs, they refused, she claims. Camarillo, the former Air Force Assistant Secretary for Manpower and Reserve Affairs, confirms this account. That's when things broke down, and the SEALs realized that, oh, we can take a stand and maybe thwart this thing, according to a former combat controller. One Mako 30 SEAL says that he was not aware of this development and that he had never been asked for such a statement after the battle, let alone refused to sign one. Newsweek verified the existence of statements from three of his teammates and attempted to reach out to them, but was unable to speak to them. For Air Force officials, the SEALs' alleged refusal to sign their witness statements represented a turning point. James says, I guess that's when it really clicked in my mind. Yep, there's something more going on here. And what a shame. In frustration, Air Force officials explained what was happening to Levine's staff, who finally allowed the package to proceed without the signatures. But valuable time had been lost. SEAL Team 6 and Naval Special Warfare Command each opposed the Air Force's effort to upgrade Chapman's award based on the events after the SEALs retreated, according to multiple sources. Rear Admiral Tim Zymanski, 
who, as head of Naval Special Warfare Command, oversees all SEAL units, was in the thick of the debate. A Navy officer familiar with the awards controversy says, quote, the biggest advocate for Slabinski was Zymanski. But Zymanski had a personal stake in how the Tucker Gar story was told. He had been Team 6's Director of Operations during Anaconda, helping run Mako 30's mission from Bagram. Slabinski has told others that when he arrived back at Bagram, bruised and exhausted from the ordeal, Zymanski was the only person to hug him and tell him he'd done a good job. Since that moment, a close bond developed between the two, says a former senior Team 6 officer who knows both men, saying, quote, Ski was always very confident in Slab, and he was always very proud of him. You could tell it was a good relationship. The former senior Team 6 officer says the way Zymanski saw it, the Air Force was trying to come against the Navy and kind of shame Slab. His point was, that dude, Slabinski, did everything humanly possible. Not on your life are you going to try to get chappy an award, which hurts Slab. And so I think he ended up doubling down to help Slab. Because if Chappie gets it, the unspoken word is, well, who left him behind? But Zymanski's fierce defense of Slabinski required the SEAL Admiral to oppose any public acknowledgement of what the Air Force, in its study of the incident, called Material Finding 2, which said that Chapman fought on after the SEALs left him behind. The Navy officer familiar with the controversy says, I just don't know how you advocate for Slabinski and be accepting of Finding 2. Indeed, throughout 2016, the SEALs tried to persuade the Air Force and then Carter's office to justify Chapman's upgrade solely on the basis of his actions before the SEALs left the mountain. According to former Air Force officials, by December 2016, with the package finally on Carter's desk, the SEALs' argument was apparently gaining traction at U.S. Special Operations Command, which doesn't make the final decision, but is allowed input. That month, says a former senior Air Force official, Thomas, the head of U.S. Special Operations Command, told General David Goldfein, the Air Force Chief of Staff, that he had changed his mind about giving Chapman's upgrade package his full support. According to two former Air Force officials, Thomas said he was more than willing to support an upgrade based on Chapman's actions up to the moment the SEALs retreated, but he wanted the Air Force to drop the second part of Chapman's citation, which summarized his actions after the SEALs withdrew. Navy Captain Jason Salata, a spokesman for U.S. Special Operations Command, referred all questions about his command's role in the Medal of Honor process to the Office of the Secretary of Defense. To James's disappointment, the former senior Air Force official says, Goldfein told her he had granted Thomas's request, worried that doing otherwise would mire the upgrade effort in months of debate. The Air Force was running out of time with the Obama administration, and Goldfein thought exceeding to Thomas gave the service a better chance of securing Chapman's upgrade. Through a spokesperson, Goldfein declined to comment for this story. James was upset at the way Thomas had circumvented her, but there was little she could do. The former senior Air Force official says, A few weeks before Trump's inauguration, the defense secretary signed Chapman's upgrade package. James pleaded with the White House to fast-track the process. But it was too late. 
getting it through the National Security Council and onto the president's desk, as well as the logistical challenge of arranging the multiple ceremonies that are standard when the commander-in-chief presents the nation's highest award for valor, required more time. As the Trump administration took office, the Chapman package returned to the Pentagon for another review. James says it got bounced back and blames the SEAL's alleged stalling tactics for the failure to get the ward approved in time. 100%, she says, it caused that delay. As a political appointee, James left the Pentagon at the end of the Obama administration. As she departed, she called Chapman's mother to tell her that her son's package had been returned to the Pentagon. James chokes up at the memory of the conversation. She recalls, quote, But I thought to myself, well, surely, 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 under General Mattis, it'll go back quickly. Yet again, her optimism was misplaced. Beyond the call of duty. Shortly before Trump's inauguration, the Navy surprised close observers of the Chapman upgrade saga. As part of the awards review directed by Carter, the service recommended that Slabinski's Navy Cross also be upgraded to a Medal of Honor. A Mako 30 SEAL says that he first heard confirmation of the Navy's intent in mid-January 2017, but he had surmised it from rumors some months earlier. From what he heard from other SEALs later, it seemed the Navy viewed this as a quid pro quo for Chapman's upgrade, saying, quote, it started to become, we're either giving two or giving none. He also thought the Navy would have recommended an upgrade for Slabinski, even if the Air Force had not tried to do the same for Chapman. Slabinski deserved it, and the review gave the Navy the opportunity to make it happen, he says. When word of the Navy's plan spread through the special ops community, some were shocked. A retired special ops official intimately familiar with the battle says, quote, it's just incredulous that they award him with the Medal of Honor. Slab was completely at fault for everything that happened that night. He and others suggested that the Navy's move was a direct reaction to the Air Force's effort on behalf of Chapman. Mike, the former targeting analyst, says, quote, They can't stop Chapman's package, so now they're trying to save face. Even members of Slabinski's own service were taken aback. Up to this point... The Navy's Talker Gar narrative had been, Slab got a Navy cross for his valor that night. He didn't leave anybody behind. The Navy officer, familiar with the awards controversy, says, it was never what Slab did was worthy of the Medal of Honor. Outgoing Navy Secretary Ray Mabus, the last stop in the Navy's approval chain for the upgrade, did not return phone calls seeking comment for this story. Thomas Opel, who served as his chief of staff, says that while he and Mavis were aware of, quote, opinions about this that differed on whether Slabinski was deserving of this award, end quote, it was not a major topic of discussion with Mavis, who approved the upgrade and forwarded it to Carter's office. The Air Force decided not to oppose Slabinski's Medal of Honor recommendation. James says the Air Force has never said a negative word about Slabinski. Everybody believes he did his best. Nonetheless, the Navy's move created a conundrum for the Pentagon. As the former combat controller puts it, how can one man earn a Medal of Honor saving everyone else's life and the second guy, whose life was saved by the first 
as he acknowledges in his witness statement and who then makes the decision to leave the first guy for dead also earn the nation's highest medal? The answer, according to a former defense official, was that just like Slavinsky's Navy Cross, the upgrade would cover not just the firefight on the peak, but also his bravery in leading his team back to Takagar to try to rescue Roberts, and then in shepherding the survivors down the mountain to safety. It was the totality of Slabinski's actions that persuaded Chief of Naval Operations Admiral John Richardson that he was worthy of the Medal of Honor. The former defense official says, given the harrowing situation he found himself in, his being able to lead the rest of his team to safety after losing two to enemy fire and having two more grievously wounded went above and beyond the call of duty. But perhaps sensitive to the argument articulated by the former combat controller, the SEALs continued to object to the Air Force's insistence that Chapman had survived beyond their departure. As a former senior Air Force official puts it, they were still really putting up roadblocks. You'll throw him under the bus. Up to mid-2016, the SEALs seemed to have portrayed Chapman's actions before they allegedly left him for dead as heroic. But by that fall, they had started to change their stance in their efforts to resist the Air Force's attempt to upgrade the Airmen's award. In this new version of events, Chapman's actions in the moments after the helicopter landed were the result of him disobeying Slabinski's order to immediately find cover and contact the gunship overhead so it could fire in support of the team. Basically, they were on the cusp of getting in, and he just took off running, guns blazing, totally off-book, off-script, glory-seeking, whatever, says the Navy officer familiar with the controversy. That was the way it was conveyed to me. A JSOC memo obtained by Newsweek regarding Chapman's potential upgrade includes a note appended by a Team 6 representative on September 21, 2016, that articulates this line of argument. Quote, The actions were inconsistent with the orders given to Chapman. He neglected his primary responsibility of establishing comms with air support, which, had he consolidated initially with the team and established comms, would have enabled positive identification of the team, their location, and allowed for close air support fires, which could have saved Chapman and prevented the wounding of the other two team members. This new tack incensed Chapman supporters, who saw it as a desperate attempt to derail his award. That became their position when nothing else was working, says the former combat controller. From the Air Force side of the equation, our disappointment at that point is absolute, because it's like, you guys, in order to protect your image, will solely the legacy of a man who you all agreed saved everyone's life 15 years ago. But now, to protect the SEAL brand, you'll throw him under the bus. The SEAL's alleged attempt to change the narrative about Chapman's initial actions also failed to persuade senior Pentagon officials who would ultimately decide whether to forward the recommendation to the White House. As one puts it, quote, There were some people who said, hey, he wasn't supposed to go to the left. He was supposed to go to the right. To which we all said, the damn enemy was to the left. He went towards the sound of guns, so shut up. End quote. A Mako 30 SEAL says that he does not recall anyone accusing Chapman of failing to obey orders. 
and that as far as he knew, the SEALs didn't have any issues with recognizing him for his heroism up until the point Chapman was shot. But, he adds, the airman's alleged actions after that point were what the Air Force was using to get him the upgrade. That rankled Chapman's Mako 30 teammates, who remain unconvinced by the Air Force's argument that their colleagues survived after they retreated. The Mako 30 SEAL says, the way they pieced it together, it didn't add up. Defense Secretary Mattis directed his deputy, retired Marine Colonel Bob Work, and Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Marine General Joseph Dunford, to evaluate the merits of both nominations. They convened a series of contentious, high-level meetings in the Pentagon. The unique nature of the Chapman case was the principal factor that once again delayed the process, according to a former defense official familiar with the discussions. Senior Pentagon officials were concerned that there were no eyewitness accounts of Chapman's heroism. One constant in the discussions. The institutional allegiances of the different special operations tribes and the direct connections of several key leaders to the Talker-Gar fight. In addition to Thomas and Zymansky, Army General Joe Vodal, the head of U.S. Central Command, also had a personal stake in the mountaintop struggle. At the time of the battle, he commanded the 75th Ranger Regiment, which meant he was Thomas's boss. The Rangers, who died, were his men as well. The Team 6 commander from 2015 to 2017 had also worked for Zymansky at Bagram during Anaconda. As a result, says a former defense official, there were no completely objective observers in this entire thing. A head on a platter. As the two packages worked their way through the system, some military officials expressed concern about several questionable episodes in Slabinski's past. Federal law states that a service member cannot receive the Medal of Honor if his service after he distinguished himself has not been honorable. Slabinski had been associated with at least three controversial incidents since Tucker Gar, according to a January 2017 article in The Intercept about alleged Team 6 transgressions. The article included an audio file of a segment of an interview Slabinski conducted with author Malcolm McPherson for his book, Robert's Ridge, which tells the Tucker Gar story from Slabinski's perspective. In the interview, Slabinski recounts a mission in 2002, not long after the Tucker Gar fight, and describes shooting at the corpse of an enemy fighter he knew was dead, just to watch the body jerk as the bullets hit it. A former special operations officer who has heard Slabinski discuss the same incident said it sounded to him as if it could be construed as a war crime. The other two episodes occurred during a 2007-2008 deployment to Afghanistan. In one, Slabinski told his men before a mission that he wanted, quote, a head on a platter, according to The Intercept. Slabinski and others later said he was speaking metaphorically but one of his men appeared to try to saw off a dead militant's head. Slabinski later told the New York Times he ordered the operator to stop what he was doing. The Naval Criminal Investigative Service looked into it, but closed the case after finding no evidence the SEALs had broken the laws of armed conflict. 
Shortly thereafter, Slabinski's squadron was involved in another contentious incident when local elders accused the SEALs of killing every man they saw during a mission. A former senior Team 6 member told the New York Times that Slabinski, the squadron's senior enlisted man, had directed the operators to kill every adult male they encountered on the raid. Slabinski denied giving any such guidance, and a JSOC investigation found no wrongdoing. The allegations in the Intercept article were looked into by Naval Special Warfare Command when that article was published, a Navy official tells Newsweek. No allegations of misconduct were ever found to be credible. Although the Intercept article covered all three episodes, only the 2002 incident was raised to the attention of the Pentagon officials considering whether to forward Slabinski's Medal of Honor recommendation to the White House. As one puts it, we were aware of the audio file where Slab admitted to shooting a corpse. However, we were told he had not been subject to any disciplinary action. After careful consideration, it was decided that it was not something that should prevent Slabinski receiving the nation's highest award for valor. Nonetheless, the officials flagged the matter when they sent the recommendation forward. Quote, We wanted to make sure that those who would make the final decision were aware of the incident, a former defense official says. However, a former senior Team 6 officer says a Medal of Honor for his actions during the Takagar fight would force Slabinski to repeatedly relive an extraordinary traumatic episode he has tried to put behind him. In 2016, Slabinski told the New York Times that he had been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder and still saw visions of figures moving in slow motion on Takagar. Says the former senior Team 6 officer, I don't think he really wanted this thing. Yet, Slabinski has reluctantly accepted that it's his duty to accept the award if the president signs off on it. He adds, he's going to be the quiet professional and represent it the best he can. The heroism of both men. By July, Dunford and Work recommended that the awards for both Slabinski and Chapman be upgraded to medals of honor. Mattis forwarded both packages to the White House in the fall. If Trump approves the awards, it will mark only the third time in the post-9-11 era that two Medals of Honor have been awarded for actions during the same battle, says awards expert Sterner, an Army veteran with two combat tours in Vietnam. Despite the efforts of the SEALs and U.S. Special Operations Command, when Chapman's award citation went to the White House, it included a reference to his lonely fight after the Mako 30 survivors had retreated. Work ultimately reinserted that language, James says. However, another source tells Newsweek that much of the detail pertaining to Chapman's actions during that period will be classified because of the technical intelligence that was involved. This news, already known to some insiders, fed perceptions that the Pentagon was trying to protect the SEAL's reputation. It's part of accommodating SEAL Team 6, says the former combat controller. It allows them to sort of obfuscate things. Chapman's sister, Lori Longfritz, says her priority is seeing her brother recognized for his heroism, not the politics that has surrounded the effort to upgrade his award. She tells Newsweek, I just want John to get what he deserved to be awarded back in January of 2003. What happens outside of that, I don't care. Spokesmen for U.S. Special Operations Command and U.S. Central Command were mum about whether their bosses had concurred with the upgrades for Chapman and Slabinski. However, a defense official says U.S. Special Operations Command did not concur with the Slabinski upgrade, but did for Chapman's. 
only on the basis of his actions before the SEALs withdrew. There was a late effort to persuade Mattis not to approve Slabinski's upgrade, according to a senior Pentagon official. There's some unease about the Navy's push to upgrade, and some people have expressed doubt as to whether it's truly worthy of a Medal of Honor, the official says. A couple of people have tried to slow it down, but the train seems to have left the station, unless the White House decides otherwise. Historically, once a Medal of Honor package reaches the White House, it is virtually assured of approval, says Sterner. However, the Trump administration has yet to make an announcement regarding either package. Defense Department policy is not to comment on the status of pending Medal of Honor nominations until the award is announced by the White House or the medal is awarded by the president, says Eastburn, the Pentagon spokesman. Says a former defense official, the reputational aspect of all of this may be why the White House is taking so long to approve the awards. In other words, the Trump administration may be preparing for blowback. When you're asking the president to award the Medal of Honor, you want to make sure that he understands, look, this will be viewed as controversial by some people and may play out in the press in ways that detract from the heroism of both men, the former official says. Any debate over the validity of the awards would be unfair to the men being recognized, says Sterner. There should be no controversy here, he says. Awarding both of these men the Medal of Honor does nothing to take away from the prestige of the award and everything to highlight the true heroism of two very, very dedicated servicemen. Senior Pentagon officials ultimately reached the same conclusion. Says the former defense official, quote, I'm sorry it took so long and there was such a contentious debate, but I'm satisfied in the end the right decision was made. Both Slab and Chappie were courageous warriors who rated a Medal of Honor. This by no means guarantees unanimous opinion among officials who have watched the process play out over the past two years. Says the Navy officer familiar with the controversy, the soil is pretty freaking soggy for us to really stand firm on any of these. Meanwhile, he adds, the Pentagon is trying to silence the naysayers. Mattis's office has made it pretty clear that if and when this thing moves... We don't want to hear any dissenting voices or side chatter. That may be a vain hope. I know how bad this story can be, the officer says of the potential fallout, which makes him wonder, why are we even walking into this buzzsaw? John D. Naylor is the author of Not a Good Day to Die, The Secret History of Operation Anaconda, and he's a national security correspondent for Yahoo News, and he wrote every word you've heard me read over the past couple of weeks. You can read the article in its entirety by visiting our Facebook page, facebook.com slash felt recoil show. <laughs> 